You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Welcome if you're new. My name is Morgan. I'm a lead pastor here at Mosaic. And I'll just have to, after first service, I had to, I thought, I've got to say this. Like, I'm sorry for not being there at the park day yesterday. People were giving me a lot of, some, some grief about it because they missed us. Our oldest child was graduating from high school. So I, I assume that's a relatively acceptable excuse. Um, there you go. Hey, uh, we're in the middle of a series, as you can see, called Not Alone. We've got two weeks left after today. And in every series, I was thinking about this, there's usually one message that gets to the heart or cuts to the core of what that series is all about. And I think if this series had that message, then this message today would be that message. Because in just a moment, we're going to get to the center of something that exists uh, where, where and when we feel alone, and we're going to see what God's Word might say about it, all right? But let's begin first with our scripture reading today. It's going to be from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with, his, with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope. That's the reading of God's word, and all his people said... Amen. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, statisticians and social scientists have been tracking a particular phenomenon in the United States for the last few decades, and that is the phenomenon of ever-increasing levels of loneliness, ever-increasing experience of uh, isolation and feeling alone, and every year or so, and you may see these too, some new study comes out which talks about how, how now levels of uh, aloneness, loneliness, isolation are at an all-time high, and that this phenomenon is getting worse, not better. And last year, in April of 2020, 2021, yeah, this hit an all-time high once more. Here's a study from People Magazine. It said this, quote, Since the pandemic started, 67% of Americans have felt more alone than ever before, according to new research. And again, it was already at an all-time high going into this. Results revealed 55% also feel like they've completely lost their sense of community in the past year. 
The feelings of loneliness and isolation were so rampant among Americans that 46% revealed they cried for the first time in years during the pandemic. And one of, I think, perhaps the main reason that leads people to feeling alone is what we're going to look at today, which is this. It's the experience of pain. The experience of pain. Because pain of any kind, pain and loneliness share a deep connection. For example, it could be the physical pain of uh, the prolonged effects of an injury, something that's now called long COVID perhaps, or from a daily battle with injury, illness, cancer. Physical pain makes you wonder if anyone knows what it's like to be you. Second, it could be the psychological pain of decreased mental health, the struggle that perhaps you have, a loved one has with mental illness. Psychological pain makes you wonder if anyone sees you. It could be the emotional pain the loss of a loved one, betrayal of a friend, or the fear or anger that you feel when you see something in the news, like a nation invading another nation, come on, seeing yet another racially motivated mass shooting, it devastates yet another community, you get angry, you get fearful, emotional pain makes you wonder if anyone really cares about you. We ask things like, does anyone know, does anyone see, does anyone really care about my pain? What I hope to show you today is something remarkable in the middle of all of that that only the Christian faith gives you, which is this. It's my thesis today. Not only are you not alone in your pain, but God can transform and heal your pain to bring about something brand new in your life and in the world. Thank you, Galen, for one amen. I'll ask for a few more. Maybe I can get a few more. Again, ain't too proud to beg. I'll read it again. Not only are you not alone in your pain, but God can transform and heal your pain to bring about something brand new in your life and the world. Now to show you why this is... Man. Raise the hallelujah right there. Well done. Well played. All right, (laughs) show you why this is true. Y'all are the best, by the way. All right, show you why this is true. I want to try to pick up here four four four-word phrases from the Apostle Paul's introduction to what we call 2 Corinthians and lay out a Christian response to human pain. Here we go. Look at these phrases. We're going to look at in all our troubles. Number two, so that we can... Number three, who raises the dead. And finally, look at this phrase. We'll look at it. Have put our hope. Here we go. Number one, let's look at this phrase, in all our troubles. Because in this passage, Paul writes something remarkable. Verse eight, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Now, church historians don't know exactly what these troubles specifically were, but there are at least five distinct possibilities based on some clues that Paul sprinkled in in his other writings about his life during that time. Number one, he fought, could have been, he fought what he called wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, this could be literal, this could be metaphorical, like for some unruly church members he was struggling with. Commentator's assessment, not mine. Okay, that's true. Wild beast number two, he was whipped with 39 lashes. He was involved in a riot in Ephesus. There was a specific unnamed persecution he hints at in Acts 20. And number five, of recurring physical illness. 
So which one was it? Well, personally, I think Paul, when he writes the word troubles, he's referring to all of these. Fighting animals to survive, being whipped, lied about, ongoing health issues. Paul had troubles, and all of his troubles took their toll. In other words, he's saying here, after living through crisis after crisis, year after year, I'm raising my hand and saying, I'm just a little bit tired tired. And not only was he tired, he goes on beyond that. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Now, for some folks, it's popular to say, you know what? Maybe you've been attempted to be comforted by these words. God will never give you more than you can handle. To which I would offer 2 Corinthians 1.8. Paul said, we despaired of life itself. He wasn't just tired. He was exhausted, burned out, depressed, borderline, suicidal. And here he is publicly confessing all of this to the whole church. Now today, in our culture, we say stuff like this. You should be honest. You should be open about your struggles. You should be vulnerable and authentic. We think we've got the market cornered on vulnerability and authenticity to which Paul the Apostle would look at all of that and say, hold my communion wine. (laughs) (laughs) Concludes like this. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. He says, I feel like I'm dying inside. Now, could you imagine if I got up here today and I said, greetings to all God's holy people in Austin, Texas, and wherever you're watching from today, grace and peace to all of you. Welcome. I am despairing of life itself. (laughs) Are you ready for the message? Now, if I did that, what would you think about me? Would you think more of me? Saying like, he's just being like Paul. Would you think less of me? Saying like, That guy needs to get a grip, you know? What would you think? Hmm. It's challenging, isn't it? So what's Paul doing here? Two things. First of all, he's showing us that pain happens. And that pain happens to a Christian. Christians, he's showing us, are not exempt from physical, emotional, psychological pain. This is just a true statement. And second, second, Paul is reducing the stigma around poor mental health. So should we. Think about it. In a shame and honor culture like what he's writing in, to lead off a letter with an acknowledgement of clinical depression and an admission he had walked around feeling like he's dying inside, despairing of life. This is unheard of. And remember, again, Christians consider this to be holy scripture. This is authoritative in our life today from God. We should therefore pause for a moment and just say, there's no shame being depressed. There's, uh, there's nothing wrong with feeling sad. There's no guilt if you feel like you need help. Please get help. If you need help, even, can you see, the main writer of the New Testament, greatest church planner in history, acknowledged he was struggling deeply, emotionally and mentally. Paul shows us, number one, that pain happens to us all. Number two, though, what can be done about it? What can we do with it If and when we experience it, he goes on. Number two, he says, we can do something with it. Back in verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. That's the Greek word paraklesis, where we get a nickname for the Holy Spirit there. He says, God then not only comforts us, 
for the sake of us, that's amazing. He's saying that God is with you in your pain. Today, if you're struggling with something, you are not alone in it. God is with you. He's your Emmanuel. We're not alone. God comforts us for the sake of us. And something else happens. He comforts us for the sake of others. He goes on. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. After all, think about it. Who is better equipped to speak to someone going through something than the one who has him or herself been through that very thing? There's a little town, you may have heard of it, in the south of France called Les Chamonts. It's become a famous town. During World War II, uh, during the Nazi occupation of France, Les Chamonts became a very open, very active pocket of resistance to the Nazis. And the local Christian pastor there in that town, Les Chamonts, was a man named Andre Trocmé, who on the Sunday after France fell to the Germans, very next Sunday, he got up and preached a sermon in which he said that if the Germans came in and made the townsfolk of Les Chambon do anything they considered to be contrary to the gospel, that they shouldn't and wouldn't do it. And they didn't. So here's what happened. So the school children of Les Chambon refused to give the Nazi salute each morning in school as the new government had decreed they must. The occupation rulers had also required teachers to sign an oath of loyalty to the state. But Trachmay ran the school there as well, not just the pastor, but the principal in Le Chambon and instructed the teachers not to do it. Before long, Jewish refugees on the run from the Nazis heard of Le Chambon and began, of course, showing up looking for help. Trachmay, the townsfolk, took them in, fed them, hid them, smuggled them across the borders when they could in open defiance of Nazi law. And once, when a high government Nazi official came to town to sort of enforce the rules, a group of students actually went up to him in public and presented him with a letter that stated plainly and honestly the townspeople settled opposition to those policies. And here's what the letter said. Can you imagine this guy reading this? He said, we feel obliged to tell you there are among us a certain number of Jews, the letter stated. Like, we're not hiding it. But we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our Jewish comrades receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received and we would try to hide them as best we could. Sort of like game on, right? Now where did the people of Les Chambon find the courage to defy the Nazis like this? Here's how. For more than 100 years, in the 17th and 18th centuries, the people of Le Chambon had been ruthlessly persecuted by the state. They were part of a religious minority group called the Huguenots. The Huguenots were French Protestant Christians who had been persecuted, again, for these two centuries. Their pastors had been tortured. They had been hanged. Their wives had been sent to prison. Their children ripped from their families and taken from them. They had learned how to hide in the forest. They learned how to escape to Switzerland across the border to conduct their worship services in secrecy. In one of the many books written about this town, there was an extraordinary line from Andre Trockma's wife. Her name was Magda. And when the first refugee appeared on her doorstep... In the bleakest part of the winter in 1941, Maga said this. She said it never occurred to her to ever say no. She said, quote, I did not know that it would be dangerous. Nobody thought of that. What a remarkable thing to say. 
Nobody thought of that. Like Nazis, Germans, rolling in, nobody thought it was going to be dangerous. Never occurred to her. It could be risky to care for these Jewish refugees. It's like they shouldn't help them. But here's the million dollar question. The Huguenots of Le Chambon were not the only committed Christians in France, 1941. There were millions of committed Christians in those years in France. They believed in God, just like the people in this little town did. So why did so few Christians follow the lead of the people in Le Chambon? Why did so few Christians reach out risk themselves for the sake of what was right. Well, I'm sure there could be a number of reasons, but here is the main one. It's because those other Christians had never suffered in this way. They had never suffered like the people in the town of Le Chambon had. They never experienced pain in this way. Therefore, they had little to no empathy or comfort to give. Because it's easy, isn't it? It's like natural... When you're healthy, when you've got money, if you're from a family or a group or a culture that's really never faced genocide, persecution, deep uh, risk of extermination, it's natural to kind of move away from risky, hurting people or, or groups because if you've suffered little, you've got little comfort to give. But they who have suffered much can comfort much. So if suffered much, can comfort much. See, facing deep pain of any kind, relational, psychological, emotional. And finding God in the middle of it allows you, like these French Christians, to heal the world bit by bit by bit. Number one, that pain happens is inevitable. Number two, what pain can bring about is comfort through us to others. And all of that is true. But what I want you to see next is Paul here, he's about to go way beyond all of these and make a kind of cosmic claim about pain and shows us something incredible here that God does through our pain. Number three, through this phrase, who raises the dead. What's he after? All right. When Paul writes at the end of this section on suffering and pain, he says, this happened That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's giving us a clue to not just what God does through our pain, not only to what the letter of 2 Corinthians is all about, but he gives us a clue to what the gospel of Jesus Christ itself is all about. Because 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at it here, as commentators say, is Paul's devastating critique of the way that humans use and view strength and power. Why? Well, it's because of Paul's, again, we'll look at it here, Paul's unique and complicated relationship with the people of this church in Corinth. Because if you just sort of drop into 2 Corinthians, like we did a few moments ago, you don't have any context. It's sort of like walking into a room where these two people are fighting. And you walk in the middle of the conversation, you're like, ooh, it feels a little chilly over here. (laughs) It feels a little chilly over there. There's a little tension here. There's a lot of tension in this room. Because in Acts chapter 18, we read that Paul, along with his friend Silas, he's called Silvanus in this letter, Paul planted this church in Corinth. Uh, This was a church in a city that was full of idolatry, full of like rampant, unbridled sexual expression. Corinth was also one of the largest and most important cities in its day, in this day, in the Roman Empire. Extremely prosperous. Economy going great guns, full of well-connected people, an important trade city, full of trade routes throughout the Roman Empire. So Paul plants this church in this city in Corinth. 
Then he leaves. But after he leaves, he hears this church had now become marked by all kinds of fighting, all kinds of divisions. They were fighting over communion. People were getting drunk on communion wine, fighting about that. Yeah. Fighting over what to do with all the immorality in the church, like some guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law. What do we do about that? There was fighting over spiritual gifts, but the one that threatened to tear the church apart was the fight, the division over power. There was fighting over who to follow based on like who had the best reputation, the brightest speaking gift. And Paul hears about all of this. And so he writes 1 Corinthians to try to help. And at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he promises to return again and to help them sort through all their problems. And he does it. Paul returns to Corinth only instead of being welcomed warmly, he gets the cold shoulder no warm welcome. He finds his reputation has started to be maligned in the church. He faces all this opposition and he leaves the church he planted more or less in disgrace. And so he writes him a second letter to try to set things right, which fascinatingly has been lost to us. It's been lost to history. You could call that letter, actually let's call it 1.5 Corinthians today. Okay. And we know about it because Paul references it a little later in 2 Corinthians. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1.5 Corinthians, he promised, writing from this place of anguish, to come and kind of put the hammer down, to come in boldness, to come in authority, try to help them sort through their problems. But right after he sent the second letter, 1.5 Corinthians, right after he committed to come again to them, something bad happened. What was it? All of Paul's troubles. All the things he mentioned, we just looked at, most significantly of which was the massive persecution in Asia, which prevented his return. So he didn't go back. He couldn't go back. But then Paul got word that because he couldn't go back, his reputation now in Corinth was shot. His critics had leveraged his inability to come back to shred his reputation. People he heard were literally making fun of the way he looked. I mean, some church you were from had problems. Okay. They were saying he was only in ministry for the money. He was a bad preacher. (laughs) Especially compared to others. Now, the the bad preacher bit that might have been kind of true about Paul. Because we know one time Paul preached so long, it was apparently so boring at a meeting, that a teenager literally fell asleep and fell out of the window. (laughs) The kid hit the ground and died. Yeah. But no worries, Paul raised him from the dead. So no harm, no foul, right? <clears throat> Thankfully, neither of these, or the second has never happened to me. Plenty of people actually have fallen asleep on me. This might be you right now, might be your neighbor right now, okay. But no one's ever fallen out of a window on me. Anyway, the reputation smearing stuff kept going on. They were saying like, if we can't trust Paul to keep like a basic travel itinerary, do you really think we should trust him as a leader at all? With all that in mind, you'll notice now why 2 Corinthians is so different. This is why he begins the letter sharing openly about his pain, his struggles, his depression. He doesn't write to them in strength. He writes to them in weakness. This is why he writes throughout this letter. You can read it for yourself about doing ministry with an unveiled face, like taking all of our masks off, 
Why he talks about boasting only in the Lord, not in reputation, credentials, accomplishments. This is why he begins the letter talking about his depression. And he ends the letter with these words. He said, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. He concludes that is why. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. What's Paul doing for 12 excruciating chapters? He's critiquing, upending how human beings use and view strength and power. We think when we're strong, we're strong. But Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Those are the ones who will inherit and rule the earth. We think when we have a good reputation, we get a thousand followers, a million likes, we're strong. But Jesus says, woe to you when all people speak well about you. We think talking about sad things like pain, talking about injustice, that's the problem. The gospel says, no, not talking about them actually bring you problems. Because Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Speaking about mourning over sin in the world, in your own heart. The ones who mourn will be comforted. We think the rich are the ones to whom we should listen, for whom we should vote. But Jesus says, his kingdom does not belong to them. His kingdom belongs to the poor and those whose hearts are in poverty. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel he's showing us of humility, of self-giving, self-sacrifice. A gospel where sometimes we get the evil we don't deserve so that others can get the good that maybe we did deserve. And here's why. Here's why this was so hard for them to get then, why it's hard for us to get now, especially today, because we live today, you feel this, we live in a culture with a single, central, overarching, here's the word, myth. And the myth is this. We would be happier, more fulfilled if we could only focus forever on ourselves. But it's a myth. It's not true. We're told If we're completely free of all social obligations, obligations to any community, any family, God, spouse, spouse, church, children, group, whatever, if we have any commitments, that makes us less healthy, less strong. We think that to have deep attachments to church, God, family, commitments, those make us less, right? Our culture tells us don't join anything, don't serve, don't give, just consume, rely on yourself. But that's literally the opposite of the gospel message of self-giving. Do you know why we pray? Why you should pray? Here's why. Because prayer acknowledges spiritual weakness. You know why you give? Because it creates financial weakness. You know why you fast? Because it creates physical weakness. You know why you serve? Because it creates relational weakness. It puts someone upstream from you. See, the God of the Bible calls us to go so far as to schedule weakness into our lives, to remind us we cannot, must not rely on ourselves. Relying on ourselves only causes the anxiety we're trying to escape by looking at ourselves more. It just compounds the problem. It calls us to schedule weakness, to die to ourselves, and to live for the God who raises the weak, raises the dead. See, God's power was made perfect, not in Christ's strength, not in his teaching, not in his miracles, but in Christ's weakness. 
in the pain and weakness of the cross and the grave. And his power can be made perfect in your weakness as well. You say, how is that? Number four, let's look at finally at this one more phrase. This phrase, him we have put our hope. Woman by the name of Hannah Arendt may have heard her name. She was a 20th century political thinker, uh, philosopher, and she at one point famously interviewed and wrote about it. Uh, uh, someone named Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the Nazi Master Plan, is a war criminal, and she said this. It's an amazing quote. She said, "Without being bound to the fulfillment of promises, promises we make to others in love, we would never be able to achieve the amount of identity and continuity which together produce a person about which a story can be told." Each one of us, if we did that, each one of us would be condemned to wander helplessly and without direction in the darkness of his own lonely heart caught in its ever-changing moods, contradictions, and equivocalities. A lot of big words there, what she's saying. See that whether the world goes crazy on the outside or crazy on the inside, pain outside, pain inside, regardless, you need something, she's saying, that will keep you from drowning in that pain and drowning in your own feelings. Why would she say this? You know this. It's because when we experience pain, body, relationship, globally, when the headline comes, when the friends fail, when the body betrays, it threatens to make us crawl inside, go inside, and stay inside only ourselves, only our pain. Our pain makes us want to pull back, decommit from God and others. But the problem is, and again, you know this, if we only go inside, crawl inside, stay inside pain, it threatens to make us worse in the long run. It threatens to pull us apart. What can bring us out? What can keep us from allowing our pain to make us sick? What can help us build our lives, not on our wounds, but on God's word? Hannah Arendt says is this. It's making and keeping a promise to someone else on the basis of love. Now, why would of all things this be true? Why would it be true that making and keeping a promise to someone else out of love for the sake of love transforms us into a person with an authentic identity and make us into someone about whom a great story can be told? Oh, think about it. What did Jesus Christ do for you? Hmm? Do for us what happened to him? He came to our world. An outsider had his reputation smeared, mocked like Paul. Like Paul, he came to his own and his own did not receive him and killed and hung on a Roman cross. What kept him there? It was this, a promise made out of love where he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you even as I'm dying in my own pain. Listen, if Jesus Christ would have only been a great teacher, you may or may not have read about him. If he had only come and done some miracles, that would have been amazing. But he still would have been like a, like a passing curiosity in history. But because he kept, he made and kept his promise to come and save his people because he came and died and trusted God's power to resurrect him even when he felt cosmically alone. As he cried out, my God, where are you? Where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? Now, because he did that, he is the story above all stories. He is the name above all names. And that's why Paul writes this, 
on him. He says, in Jesus' past pain, we have put our future hope. He's saying the past pain of Jesus Christ gives us a future hope when we go through our stuff now. See, Paul looked at Jesus Christ and he knew, if Christ made and kept his promise to me in his pain, and that only made him greater, and if I'm in him, here's what it means. It means the same will be true of me. Therefore, I don't have to quit. I don't have to give up. But I do get to surrender. (laughs) I just say, not my will, but yours be done. And at that moment, when we say this, Christ's power begins to go to work in a fresh way in our lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in the past gives us hope for our present and for our future. Christian poet George Herbert said this, put it like this, death used to be an executioner, but the gospels only made him a gardener. (laughs) If we die, we just get planted and come back to life even better. Let me ask you, what have you put your hope on today? Hmm? What do you make your boast in, to use Paul's language? Paul's language, to use Hannah Arendt's language. Uh, What do you want your story to be? What you put your hope in, I want to tell you, is what your story is going to be. Is it your own strength, looking at your own self, or is it looking at Jesus and just saying, oh, your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is perfected in my weakness. Therefore, I'll boast about them, for when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Third verse, the last thought, third verse of the famous hymn, My Hope is Built, you probably know it, was written by a British pastor. As a boy, he he grew up on the streets of London, abandoned by his parents. He said, I was so ignorant, I didn't even know there was a God. His parents ran a bar, a tavern. They left him on his own to grow up. But he said this, after he came to Christ, he wrote this hymn. This is the third verse, love it. He said, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. See, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He's saying here, Christ's oath, his promise to me is what I put my hope in and therefore I can keep my promises to God and to others. Church, again, not only are you not alone in your pain today, but God can transform and bring healing to it in such a way that it redeems your life redeems the world. Hope you can say amen. Let me take a moment to pray for you. Jesus, we come and we thank you today. As we said, we don't want to leave your presence in your presence. There's fullness of joy. And man, we need joy right now in our culture, in our moment, in our families, in our lives. Thank you for all the successes, all the moments of strength and glory and apparent freedom. And we thank you for all the troubles. These have happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And I pray for every hurting and broken heart they would experience a foretaste of that resurrection today the moments to come in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Alvin, would you come? Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.